0: time to down your unders, down your unders. The Frontline Gaming Network brings to you Art of War Down Under. Review and dissection of content from some of the sharpest minds in the game. Hosted by Adam
1: Camilleri. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to what is essentially episode zero of Art of War Down Under. This is a very, very, very brand new Podcasts from the people in the forgotten realms down south or in the lands of tomorrow, as may be. Uh, joining us today, we have three illustrious, illustrious guests that being Eric Lathuris, one of the most well known and prolific tournament uh, winners in Australian history, possibly having one of the biggest winning records that we've ever seen down here. We have uh, Jeremy Marigold, who is a three time CanCon champion and also in my mind, one of the best Eldar mines we have out there. And lastly, we have Matt Morisoli recently, first in Australia for the ITC and was went five and one at LVO 2019. So a very illustrious. sorry, 2020, my bad. Now, Art of War Down Under is a brand new concept being launched. Um, and we have evolved essentially from what was uh, Down Under Network. We evolved into um, Art of War Down Under, become a branch of that organization. Now, What we're going to be doing, we're going to be doing a two-part podcast in a very similar vein to what you'd expect from regular Art of War. The first part of this podcast will be essentially content reviews. We're also going to be talking a little bit about the philosophy and strategy of the game and the community. We are very community focused, um, but mostly we're going to be doing content reviews. So we're going to be reviewing things like Psychic Awakening, a new rule set and many, many more things. Now, the second part of this, which will be available for our Patreon groups, that will be the fundamentals of using the content we've reviewed in a practical setting, e.g., let's say an Eldar release happens. We will be reviewing that content on the first part of the podcast with an Eldar expert, let's say Jeremy, and then we will be putting that into practice, writing lists with that content and talking about how to make that and turn that into viable and usable strategies on the battlefield. On top of that, um, we'll be doing uh stream like so Art of War Down Under will be streaming content, we'll be streaming events as we were as Down Under Network, and we'll be reviewing that content and giving you guys insights into the games from the perspective of the commentators, also perspective from the tournament winners. So that'll be something we'll be doing uh quite prolifically. All right, for the first part of this essentially zero starting point episode, we're going to be doing an 8th edition retrospective. So we're going to be breaking down our thoughts and our feelings on the edition that was, and that has come to a pretty abrupt end, I think we can all all say. I think it ended a couple of weeks earlier than we thought it was going to. Um, But I'm going to flick it over to this gentleman's first. The first one I'm going to be talking to will be Mr. Jeremy Marigold. So he was one of the most dominant players of 7th edition, and I want to know what his thoughts were going into 8th.
2: Hey guys, Jeremy here. So, yeah, when 8th edition dropped, I went in quite skeptically because I really liked 7th edition and the complexity with list writing you could do in that edition. But once 8th came out and started to get, you know, rules started to be released for the codexes and we started to see uh, codex based stratagems come out, I really do feel like it was quite a lean edition and a very tactical, very interesting edition. And I think it certainly had its prime. I mean, I'm sure the other guys, I don't want to cut too much on what the others are going to say, but I feel like just before the Marine book came out when it was a very kind of uh, competitive metagame when you had things like, um, you know, there was an interesting tank commander and blood angels list. There was GSC were good. Orcs were good. Chaos had a really interesting kind mm. of menagerie list with demons and CSM. And it was just a really robust meta. And I think that for me was a really pinnacle moment of the edition that I loved. So, I, I, you know, I really do
1: have fond memories of it. Nice. Matt? Where were you? Th- what were your thoughts going into Eighth Edition? Because I remember, I at that the end of Seventh Edition, you and I had just podiumed at Terracon, literally like the last major of Seventh Edition. You and I had come first and second, and we were looking down the barrel of a, a much different game going into like literally the week after that event.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think to to echo what Jeremy said, when Index Eighth uh, came out, I found the game pretty boring and pretty stale. I feel like it was uh, uh, it, it was a little bit ominous, and I know a lot of people around me were a bit worried about sort of what was to come it felt like it was very much just pick the best individual units uh you know talking back when uh you know magnus and uh, a bunch of psychers behind a million brimstone horrors was a thing Uh, it it felt very much just (laughs) like a a different version of a deck builder to the way the seventh was but as yeah as jeremy said once books started coming out and you sort of get the uh the individual codex stratagems i think that really uh, really evolved the game obviously they fixed a lot of the uh the broken points costs that were out in index uh, in index 40k and yeah right around uh i think we we're all fortunate to have played in last year's etc but I think that was the prime meta for eighth edition there were a lot of different uh power factions that had multiple good builds uh there was this really really interesting metagame going on where uh Different books had different uh, different interactions with each other, and it wasn't really dominated by any one thing. I think once Marines came out, it it, it all went pretty pretty downhill. I think most people will agree. <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of hard to see it any other way than that. But I, I really liked 8th edition. I think mm. the uh, the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of the edition were really really good. It was so much different to to Seventh because, uh, like again, like Jeremy, I played a lot of Death Stars in Seventh. I played the uh, the Cabal Star and bits and pieces like that. And moving to, I guess a different type of game where you're not sticking eight characters in a unit to make a unit that can't die, and the the AP change where everything can sort of die, uh, if you shoot at it long enough, uh, it was a really really interesting and different way to
1: play the game, and I really liked that. Mm, I agree. So checking over to, to Eric, what did you? What was the first army you started playing eighth with? Like when you walked into that rule set, what was the army you thought you wanted to play?
3: Oh, I made the horrible decision of starting with Harlequins.
1: <laughs> Why? Why did you choose Harleys,
3: mate? Uh, I was kind of getting into them towards the end of seventh, like playing Death, Jester Spam and some weird stuff like that. And uh, without reading too much into date then I was like, oh, well, this will probably be pretty exciting in a new edition and sit down and learn learn a new rule set. And uh, I found out that's uh, not where the game was at. I, I found it <laughs> really <weird. laughs> cool. It was really scissors, paper, rock. Okay. You know, they, they really dumbed it down. At the start, I, I was probably looking to take a pretty big backward step in 40K. Um, and then they started releasing all new rules and, and it kind of fleshed out a bit and turned into a
1: much better game. So when you... Th- like I think Jeremy said it really well. Like, the, the, and and so did Matt. At the start of the edition, it really felt like it was so stripped back that all you needed to do was find the undercosted broken unit and spam it at nauseum. You know, for a while that was Dark Reapers, and then it evolved into things like Shining Spears, Hive Tyrants. It seems like we went through or um, Storm Ravens or Razorwing Flocks or Malefic Lords. It seems like we had this uh, almost changing of the goalposts, but it was the same goalposts you know the goalposts were they're exactly the same height and you scored the same amount of goals it was just the next pivot and the next broken unit someone was going to discover where do you guys think that fundamentally changed like what changed the game to made it that made it more interesting and kept you guys interested
3: yeah i I think it was when they really got on top of releasing codexes and and fleshing out each faction with stratagems and warlord traits and relics it kind of added a completely different way for everyone each faction to play
1: very true. Yeah.
2: Those... Sorry, go, ahead, Jess. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I don't want to cut Solly's lunch, but um, for me, like when I started playing, uh, I gravitated to Eldar initially and really loved playing with Ynari because Ynari almost felt like they kind of had a codex. Like they, and I know Adam, yeah. we've spoken about this before, where they felt like they had a codex just from having the Soulburst rule. Like the Soulburst rule kind of acted as all these different stratagems rolled into one that just, happened to activate when you killed something but yeah and and obviously there was a spell as well so there was ways to use soulburst as a way of kind of using stratagems and things like that prior to them being in the game but then i think um just before the actual that specific like lvo CanCon, where the yanari list kind of came out i was using it obviously here in in australia um demons came out the codex demons and with codex demons we saw um the and i know this we saw the bloodletter unit come down with the banner of blood and the three like the 3d6 charge with the plus one mm. and that to me was when pinning started to become a really important part of the game it became wholesale at that point didn't it yeah cuz prior <laughs> to that people were still doing it and you could do it but when the demons started doing it really reliably from deep strike it started to the game started to take a much more strong pivot towards combat yeah. whereas prior to that shooting armies seemed to have the supremacy but as soon as that happened it felt like okay now combat's really powerful you need to be able to deal with these units pinning you so taking gunline armies from that point onwards started to become
1: non non they weren't didn't work you needed counter assault or something like that i can definitely attest to that man playing like playing mono guard and as soon as like oh one guardsman gets pinned by you know 30 letters which i'm gonna knock it over to sully next because that was his um like your bread and butter mate like and I suppose that was only doubled down into on the release of Ork, the Orc Codex and the GSC Codexes, And they both became prolific users of that strategy. Um, one of the things I was alluding to before was where I feel like it was a pivotal fundamental change was the Rule of Three. Now, that was a, one of the biggest changes to that was Chaos because Chaos was a huge spammer of units. Um, Matt, how did your, I guess how did your game plan, how did your mindset of the game change after the Rule of Three came in? And what were your thoughts on it?
0: Yeah, so that was actually exactly what I was going to say before you got in there, Adam. So, uh, great morning. No, you're you're all good. So, uh, for those who don't know, I, I guess uh, Eric will know, but uh, maybe Jeremy and, uh, and Adam don't know. Back in 5th Ed before, I guess you guys were really around, I played an absolute crap load of Dark Eldar. I played just MSU Dark Eldar was all I played. think, you know, 10, 12 Venoms in an army uh, full of cabs and stuff like that. And back then, uh, MSU in fifth was so powerful, and there were a lot of reasons that ITC made it a bit weak. There were, you know, the very easy way to give up kills and kill more, and other bits and pieces like that. So when we were playing ITC, MSU wasn't, uh, you know, w- w- wasn't the greatest look all the time. Uh, I got to play exactly one game with nine Dark Eldar Ravages before the Rule of Three came out. Um, I <laughs> took it around to one of our, my good friends' place. I, I didn't actually own nine Ravages. I used Raiders. We played a bit of Proxy Hammer there. But I played right after the Disintegrator Ravager came out for 125 points or whatever it was, ridiculously under, under-costed. Uh, put nine of them down on the table, and I absolutely wiped the floor with, I can't even remember who I played, honestly. Uh, I I played that once. I always thought to myself, this is absolutely stupid and you're going to see it everywhere. And probably Mm. two days later, the the Raw 3 FAQ came out. And I sort of, I think I breathed a sigh of relief because I didn't really want to play it, but I knew other people were going to play it if if it hung around. And look, I I wasn't a fan uh, early on, uh, but I definitely think that it made list writing towards the end of the game, you know, a lot more interesting. And look, if you look back on it, who really wanted to play against, you know, Fifteen Thunderfire cannons, right? Because that's something you would have seen if uh, mm. if rule of three didn't exist.
1: Yeah, I like so. Every it, pre pre rule of three, everyone had their broke unit. Like I remember, I played a game running triple Baneblades against I think it was either forty six or fifty two Dark Reapers. I remember playing against Lee Abbey running I think it was thirteen or fourteen Malefic Lords. I I know we've all played against the the storm Raven spam um, with Gilliman. And It just seems like as soon as that came in, the the whole playing field changed. It wasn't the goalpost changed. We moved to a different stadium, like we a better stadium where we actually wanted to play the game again. Um, Eric, that, I, I, I've got this funny feeling. It was around that time you switched onto the Nid Train.
3: yeah, uh, yeah. So, I mean, when Rule of Three came in, I was over the moon to not have to play against Simon's three million hive tyrants. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, when when that came in, I I started playing Eighth a bit more. Uh, so it kind of forced everyone to build, you know, actual lists again, hmm. uh, and I I gravitated straight back to to my roots and playing a horde army, and uh, and that was that was in the form of uh, three million term
1: Yeah, and uh, oh boy, that changed the world down here. I don't know about everybody else overseas. Hopefully, who's tuning in to listen to this, but that was a fundamental change. Like a lot of people, not only jumped onto that bandwagon in Australia, but if they didn't jump onto it, they had to have a way to mold around it a way to work with it to not just be like oh you've got you've got more bodies than i have bullets you win the game so what is what are some things that we did jump in whoever wants to jump in first uh what are some things that we did uh, and you guys did as essentially like t- some of the top players in australia and probably the world to keep up with what was an ever-evolving ever and ever-changing game
0: yeah look i'll jump in here um probably before i started playing chaos which is probably what i played for the last two years in this edition i was playing the uh, the Weird Sisters BA guard list. So, for those who don't know, it was a couple of repressors with uh, the scouting sisters and stormbolters that were shooting out the top, uh, with a shadow sword and then some BA captains and Lib dread or whatever your sort of your your BA smash character of choice was. Um, this sort of started to fall out of favour when the the Good Elder list really started to rise to popularity. So after. Just one can come with it. A few other good players were playing Eldar. And, look, you really just couldn't keep up. You can't outshoot that army because the negative hit stacking happens and the Shadow Sword becomes useless. Uh, and, look, you, you just—you can't get your way through, uh, I, I guess, the, the powerful Dark Reapers at that time just killing your tank. So I moved to Demons pretty shortly after that. Um, and initially I didn't have sort of the same number of bodies that Eric was running, but there was a point in time where I was running you know, 60 Horrors, 90 flag Bearers, 40 Bloodletters, you know, big, big blobs of units. And I just found that I needed to find the ways to get the most out of my units. So I was taking Zangors and I was buffing up the Zangors and giving them a bunch of attacks. I was, I was trying to find ways to make units that were both good at dealing damage uh, to elite things. So having negative one on the Zangors plus bits of the long war gives you a good chance to wound even tougher things, uh, but also making sure they have enough attacks to get through hordes as well. And I think that's where uh, if you didn't go to the extreme of lots and lots of horde or lots and lots of mech, you fell into the middle of this sort of awkward place where you didn't actually do either thing quite well Mm -hmm. and other optimized armies would just beat you. Uh, So I found you have to sort of build to be able to do both. And if you couldn't do both properly, you might go
1: five and one, you might go four and two, but you're never going to win an event. Damn straight. So you're saying one of the things you did was you pivoted into, I guess, what was the dominant archetype at the time, that being horde. But you still kept it to the flavors that you liked. So you 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 went out to meet the expectations of the tournament. That being, you had to you essentially had to be playing a lot of bodies to have a better chance at winning. But you didn't jump on nits. You went you went and jumped on chaos, something that you felt added more flavor. It was more keeping into what, how you like to play the game.
0: Yeah, look, it, it was a bit of that. It was more the flexibility. So I, I know that Eric will tell you that you know the gaunt list has. Uh, a lot of cool things that it can do, and there are definitely a lot of tricks that it can do. But I found that I was enjoying the flavor of having six psychers that could do different things every game as well Mm -hmm. as units that I could put all over the board uh, in a bit of a different way. That's not to say that the way of playing the game with, you know, 250-plus gaunts, you know, is any worse. There are a heap of cool things you can do when you have so many models and you can force your opponent to move in certain ways. But for me, it was just taking units, I said, like the Zangors and the Bloodletters that could do, uh, damage to a single target really, really well, but they could also do uh, bulk attacks and get through bigger units uh, at the same time. And that's kind of why I moved away from Horrors towards the end because they just weren't very good against uh, against Knights and things like that. And Zangor's not much mm. better, but they do have an AP value and you can buff them up in different ways. And I guess felt a little bit better, I guess, in that niche. It, it was just about getting more uh, optimized units uh, and getting a bit more out of them Against a wider range of targets and sort of discounting units that couldn't do both things well.
1: Mm, absolutely. All right, hitting over to Jez. So, you're, I suppose, you cut your teeth um, firstly playing a Barkstar in seventh, then transitioned into eighth, playing um, Eldar primarily at the start, and then transitioned into Death Watch. So, none of those, you've, I've never known you to be a Horde player, mate. So, how did you contend? How did you stay relevant at this point of the, the meta?
2: Well, that's a good, yeah, good question. Um, well, I think when Eric kind of jumped into the scene playing, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't only Eric. There were other people doing similar style lists. Like um, there was the Plague Bearer Horde list um, that, was, that was around that same time, that CanCon that Eric that Eric won. Um, there were also s- numerous Plague Bearer spam lists there. Mm, um, Aiden had one. Lee had one. Um, so they're obviously Team Australia players as well um and there were very good players that were running that style of archetype obviously erics is very interesting because he has the mobility of the of the gaunts which is something that plague bearer version didn't have but i felt like for me and this is something that um matt just said you need to be able to beat both sides of the skew especially at a at a, a big event like cancon you can't just say oh i guess if i play a knight player i lose or i guess if i play a horde player i lose like if you're going into a tournament serious about winning it, you have to be able to deal with the polarities. So for me, Death Watch are an interesting choice because they obviously have the inherent horde killing capacity with Stormbolters. Um, and when they got that patch, I think it was the 2000 and end of 18 to the end of 2018, Chapter Approved, they got a big points reductions. Mm. And they became quite competitive, two-point Storm Shields. At that time, it was four-point Stormbolters, but that was quite cheap. And um they also had a reduction in the veteran costs. So they were quite affordable. So the Death Watch were a really good like anvil, kind of like a a way to just build your army around three or four squads of vets and then add in your anti-mech from there. And that's basically what I st- went into with that um at the list I took to that event. Um and I think I came second that Cancon, didn't mm, I? Yeah. So
1: for those unaware, pretty much have you ever not podiumed at a CanCon you went to, Jeremy? Um I've podiumed the last 5 and I think the first <laughs> one I went to I didn't. Oh dude, well what a yeah. what a crappy record then, like only 5 out of 6. It's a travesty.
2: <laughs> yeah, well I mean that, that went well and obviously I did I did lose to Eric and that and Eric that was a really interesting game and a very uh, novel way of playing Horde. I'd never experienced someone playing Horde so so stoically and defensively. But nonetheless, having played Eric and then moving into that meta, I felt like at least with Deathwatch you could build the army around the, the inherent Horde ca- killing capacity of the uh, the Vets and then add in like back then I had the Crass Seder, the the Knight, but then in later versions of the list, I ended up adding in Blood
1: Angels. Mm. So you had that really um, reliable and- core to, to build yourself around and then you could just add in the tech pieces you need based on what you thought the meta was. Yeah. Be.
2: And it ended up being really good because I, like, I mean, I we can go into, I mean, obviously there was a point in which I felt like I had the Horde matchup covered. I felt like I could deal with Horde. Um, the biggest... Gribbly for me to deal with in the meta was around that mid two thousand and nineteen meta with the tank commander spam lists. Mm, yeah. So generally it was like guard and custodies or guard and BA, and they. I eventually got that matchup into what I thought was okay by adding in like a big unit of death company. Um, and that matchup ended up being good for me. I felt because I could get reliable pins with the blood angels. Like the, I could use the blood angels to pin on screens, which meant I could turn that matchup favorably. But that was around the time, it was funny, because just when I felt like I'd got my Death Watch BA list into a really good spot, um, that's when the Marines came out. Marines, <laughs> yeah. And that, was, that just totally threw that list in the bin, because then <laughs> they couldn't deal with... It. Yeah. But so it was, that's the thing, and that's why it's funny, because I really felt like that eighth, the 8th the eighth Edition meta was so interesting and intricate, but then Marines just turned up and just said, no, nah, like... Well so <laughs>
1: yeah. during the during the length of well, was it three just over 3 years or just under 3 years of eighth edition I think we I think it was just under 3 years sorry and um we've gone through these it had this like four or five key points where there was this big polarizing unit that dominated and at no point I do I believe until Marines hit that there was a big polarizing faction that dominated it was always a combination of several, e.g. the Castellan List. That was a combination of three factions. That was Guard, Knights, and Blood Angels. Prior to that, um, the Yanari was often um, like a, a combination that you had. You had Aletok, you had some Dark Angels. Sorry, Dark Eldar. <laughs> uh, sometimes you had Harlequins. It was usually a conglomeration of things. If not, it was just straight and maybe some um, Ulthwaean for Eldrad or whatnot. But then when the Marines hit, it was just a swathe of factions, a swathe of different builds that all just crushed. And I don't know about you guys, but I started to lose interest again. Like uh, It was like it was at the start of the edition. Everything got really basic and really simple all of a sudden. Could you contend with X? Like, And I know, I know speaking from the – the, I know what your results have been, guys. I, I know we coped with it in different ways. Matt, Marine Meta, how did you adapt?
0: Um, I, I lost a lot of games.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, look,
0: first few outings weren't too bad. Uh, people were still adapting to, I guess, having the best book and they weren't quite sure how to use it properly. Um, the first event I played with the Marines fully, uh, I, I guess, fully out and good to go, uh, I absolutely tabled the crap out of an Ultramarines player on the top table. I just, you know, just outplayed essentially because they weren't familiar with the book being new to the faction, I guess, new to having that level of power under their control. Uh, And I felt pretty good about that. But then Iron Hands came out and a few other sort of – a few other bits and pieces came out and just Raven Guard being a very big problem for the Chaos list as well. Um, And, look, I I played so many practice games against Marines going into LVO and I felt like I had a couple of the matches uh, pretty well down. But it was always the case of any small thing can go against you and you just lose. Um, and there isn't really much you can do about that. You can sort of, you can play as well as you can, but if you fail a couple of important psychic powers as that chaos list, you just lose. And the only real counter to it was to go and to play Marines. And I didn't really want to do that. I sort of wanted yeah. to see out the season with what I've been playing. Uh, so yeah, in in short, I did. I, I made some changes to the lists. I played some slightly different things to try and uh, counteract all the, uh, the power plays that Marines had, but, Nothing was really successful. I won't say. I don't think anything I did was particularly successful in combating the uh, the marine
1: meta. I think you said that very well. You couldn't do anything wrong. I think that's what I think that's what happened to you. So those unaware, um, Matt went to the LVO uh, this year and went. You went five and one. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. I lost uh, lost game four uh, against Steve Pampere. Who ended up making? Did he either made the top eight or made the shadow round? So you know, and everyone knows. He, he, made, he,
0: made, he made top eight. I, I think he made. No, no, I think you just made top
1: eight. I think you lost in the first round uh, yeah, top. Eight. I think you lost first round at top. that was my uh, assumption as well. I think you've mirror matched with Chester, if that's it might be incorrect. I shouldn't speculate' stuff I'm not sure about. But you know that's for a chaos list five and one in the marine meta, there's nothing to be nothing to be ashamed of there. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, look. and uh, uh, to be to be fully fair, I, I, i'm I' misplayed and that's why I lost. i got the worst deployment against the worst matchup in the worst mission. Uh and obviously there are all the BCP issues that kept me up until two the night before, and I was pretty uh pretty tired first thing for game four. But th- these are all just excuses that I'm making here. I I made a mistake and I missed the screen by uh, probably one inch, uh, and that's really what cost me the game there. I feel like I could have I could have taken it to him, but um it was a a very bad mission
1: list uh yeah deployment combo. It was made it made it very, very hard. Mm, fair enough. Now, around this time, back when the I guess the Marines dropped hordes all of a sudden looked pretty, pretty bad, especially so but in in a lot of ways, they stayed relevant down here, not not quite as polarizing or as dominant as they were, but they kind of pivoted in some ways Now Eric is a big proponent of sisters, and um that's something you pivoted in when the marines dropped, isn't that right, Eric?
3: uh yeah, to an extent, so I think I had a pretty different journey uh <clears throat> molding with the meta through eightZ compared to the other guys. As we got later into the addition, I, I felt Horde was dropping off all over the place. People were gearing more into being able to fight the Horde matter, mm. And uh, in, instead of pivoting away from it, I, I kind of went the other way. I I kind of stacked on the bodies. You leaned into um, it as hard as you could, couldn't you? Yeah, so I felt like at a certain point you just hit a critical mass and they, they actually can't deal with the Horde. Um, so when the... When the Marine Meta hit, I mean, I was I was playing Sisters a little bit, but I I kind of mostly moved into a Horde GSC list that I that I ended up taking a CanCon,
1: and that was a that was like essentially a shooting GSC list, yeah. Yeah, so it was
3: pretty much all neophytes. So kind of, kind of had a similar idea to the the Gaunt Carpet, uh, yep. except the problem with the Gaunts going to the Marine Meta was having to take just turn after turn of all, all their shooting, especially their indirect. Mm. Yeah, And so kind of my way around that was playing a horde list that I didn't have to deploy on the table. So I could just mitigate the amount of turns they could get their shooting, uh, which ended up working pretty pretty amazingly, to be honest.
1: What was your record at that event? I think you, you went down to Chris Wright, the overall winner, yeah? Yes, yeah, so I went 7-1, and,
3: and I went down by one point to Chris Wright. To Chris playing Wright. Playing hand, with Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> That's a pretty legit one, mate. One.
3: Yeah, so I was pretty happy with that. It, um, it handled Marines pretty much how I was kind of envisioning it when I was writing the list.
1: Nice. Now, Jeremy, how did you pivot in? Because actually, like, you started this, I guess, this little segment we've got here by saying that, like, the army you were playing just didn't function versus Marines. Like, one, I, I remember talking to you saying, like, one single, like, unit of Centurions can just bop or, or disassemble three units of Deathwatch in a turn. Yeah, that's
2: a, that's interesting. I mean, I actually, we had made a bit of a pact going into CanCon that year that um, we were going to use our ETC factions. So for a long time, I would just assume that I was going to be playing Death Watch and I was going to make the best of Death Watch at CanCon. But then basically there was a point at which we agreed that no, because Cancon's the kind of grand final of the season, we could play whatever we wanted. So I was then given the opportunity to play anything. So I, I did consider other armies, but I ended up returning to Death Watch because I, while I do feel like they were always vulnerable to Marines, I felt like there were some of the best players in the country were not going to be playing Marines. Um, I was quite confident that three or four of the the most, you know, I I guess um, tenacious competitors were going to be playing other armies, people like Eric, people like Liam. Um, So I was, I was quite, I knew Matt obviously was going to be at LVO. So he wasn't, I didn't have to worry about Matt, but, Nonetheless, I did decide to make Death Watch work as a bit of a challenge for myself. I thought, you know what? I've had a lot of experience with Death Watch. I'm going to try to make them work so that I could then be my own X Factor um, and something to be considered as well. I didn't want to jump into the Marine uh, group. So I ended up doing Death Watch and Blood Angels, and um, I ran a basically a four-veteran a four list with 40 vets, um, the Death Watch characters, like the, the librarian – and the watchmaster. And then I had a a blood angel contingent with 15 death company. And those death company really did change the way the list worked. And I felt like I was having a lot of success in practice games because often I was able to play Marine lists. And if I got first turn against Marines with the death company, I could just totally hose the, a lot of their army. And that really made it kind of an interesting matchup. So I was pretty happy with my list going into the meta and, I think I ended up playing at CanCon. I think I played three marine lists, and I, beat yeah. and I only talked to Hayden Waldock, who, um, you know, he's one. You know, he's the Team Australia was at that time the Team Australia marine player in terms of what he planned for the soon to be cancelled WTC. But <laughs> you know, he was the a marine player for what was going to be the season. Yeah. So. I lost to him, but I did smash a couple of marine players, so it turned out that my list actually could deal with marines
1: and on top of that, it turns out that your possibly 100, 200 reps with that army was more valuable than jumping on the the hot stuff at the time well I, in the end, I'm, I'm a massive proponent of experience, and
2: even for players that are really that rate themselves as being really good, experience is still a thing um so even though I know that people like all the you know four of us in this chat and other people that are listening that that know they're really rate themselves as 40K players, even though you can jump onto a list and be great with it, if you've got hundreds of reps with an army, that's still got a lot of value. So
1: the, yeah, you, you can't, you can't like devalue it. Like you said, it's got a lot of value. You can't really look over reps. You can't, yeah, it, they're, just, they're just worth a lot and it's hard to quantify, but it's undeniable once you get to the table. Um, so moving on, gentlemen, we, we've got an idea of what we're all playing at the end of the, the edition. Was it a good edition? Like if you guys were to say, because I, I know Matt's been playing since fifth edition. I played a little bit of fourth edition, and then I played sixth, seventh, and now eighth. Eric's been playing forever. Jess has been playing for ages. What do you guys think, Matt? Was it a good edition? Uh, peak
0: eighth was good. I don't think it was as good as seventh. Um, I think, I think for the for the really uh, the really competitive player, seventh was a better edition. The uh, I, I I guess sort of deck builder element of it was uh, was really intriguing and deep and it allowed you to bring out these really really cool things, but also it sort of lent itself to you know some uh, some unbeatable lists and the bark bark star and mm. things like that look i think I think eighth was really good I think the um the mechanics of it were were pretty good. I think that in in its prime the the meta that evolved around it was really really fun and really engaging uh, but look uh, i i it's really hard to look back on it uh, favorably with how badly the end of it turned out, and how badly mm-hmm. Marines came in and took the whole thing by storm. And look, I, I think you know, if you'd asked me this question a year ago, right after, well, oh, sorry, right around um, ETC twenty nineteen, I would have said as good as it's ever been. You know, if not yeah. then, the game ever. But I think the way that it shook out at the end is really uh, is really clouding what I have to say about it. Um, yeah. It, it, it's it's kind of hard to be fair to it, given that it's gone through so many weird stages of its life, where the start of it was pretty bad, and the end of it was pretty bad. But look, the middle of middle of eighth was was really really good.
1: So, question for you then: if if COVID hadn't happened, if if Rona hadn't kept us all inside, and you had been able to to play the game consistently for the last uh, you know five or six months, playing all the psychic awakenings and all those things that have come out, do you think it would have been a healthier end to the game than the kind of stunted finish line we've got now? Oh, impossible to know, right? Like it's just, oh, just your uh, opinion. Oh, yeah. what have you got? Feelers? <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, mate. Uh, it's, one
0: of, <laughs> it's one of those things you can't really answer because I know personally I've taken the foot off. Like I, I haven't been paying as much attention to the game over the last couple of months as I was you know, the same time last year. I can't speak for everybody, but I know that you know the number of games everyone is playing is down. There are no events, at least here. There are very very few events here. Um, it's it's very hard to know what the top tier players would have been playing. Now six months after LVO Cancun, uh, had everyone stayed fully one hundred percent engaged, rather than what happened, and rather than the, uh, I guess the players dropping out and not really playing as much, not having events because of because uh, of the pandemic, um, I, I I just don't think so. I don't think anything is really that much better. The Marines, I think Marines are still just. Just too good in their current form <laughs> in this edition. Well, yeah, look, that's uh, that, 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 that that's true, right? And that's why I say it's impossible to know because yeah, you know, had we been playing nonstop and you'd started smashing everyone with thirty plus breaches, uh, I'd probably be saying something a bit different right now. Um, but look, <laughs> okay, from, well, from from where we are and where we are in actuality, I think the middle the middle of this edition, the the year and a half in between, uh, you know, indexes and Marines
1: was pretty fantastic. Awesome. Well, i open up the same question to the other two gents. Like, what do you guys think?
3: Mm. Yeah, so similar to Matt, I, I think seventh was, uh, like the middle of seventh was a more intricate, like more, it was kind of more favorable for competitive players, I think. But at the same time, like uh, eighth, ed, it, it's kind of built, built the game into what it is now. Like it's, uh it's, Borderline, like people doing forty k professionally and stuff like that, like it's really brought in a lot more players than seventh did. Seventh was uh, really uninviting for the for those middle tier players or even new players. It was just too much to grasp. Yeah. Where well, eighth has been a lot easier to kind of wrap your head around. I mean, it's changed just as much as seventh did through its life course, but uh, but it's definitely been a lot easier to get into from scratch, which uh, which I think overall has been really good.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's really well said. Like the they, uh, by the dropping of all the complexity and all the crazy death stars and stuff, the barrier to entry for new players really disappeared, didn't it? And maybe maybe that's where we're going with this because we're gonna, the second part of this episode. We're going to be discussing Ninth Edition, and well, I can tell you from from my point of view, I feel like a lot of the meat has been added back onto the bone that we lost in the transition from Seventh to Eighth. So, Jeremy, um, sitting right now. With where you're at the, at the end of the at the end of this edition, how happy are you with how well you did and how well you played and how involved you got with it?
2: Um, I'm pretty happy, dude. like i I think that um like others have said, both both boys, like um going into eight, I initially was not very impressed. Um, coming mm. off the complexity of seventh edition that i, I you know there were so many little um, nuances and changes you could make to your list just by allying and obscure things that you had access to bearing in mind that, you know, like, for example, you had those allies of convenience um, and desperate allies, you could, you could ally random Xenos with each other and stuff like things like yeah. that allowed for so many different weird lists you could do. Um, but then going into eight, I think I agree with the others. I think even though it it probably had its apex middle of last year, it certainly has allowed for us to be in a very interesting point now going into ninth where the game is very accessible to new players which seventh like absolutely wasn't. So mm-hmm. imagine like going into seventh and playing against a, you know a Cabal star or a Bark Buck star or just those top end lists or a Battle Company, you know that were just all very oppressive. Uh, whereas with eighth edition now and going into ninth, there's there's game. You know if you go first, if you have an if you have an army that can put out lots of shots, then you, you feel like even if you don't end up winning because your opponent's got that inbuilt. Um. Capacity to, to, to beat you, you still feel like you're with a shot when you when it goes over mm. to you, and I feel like that's a very important thing to have to bring in new blood because a game like 40k like it needs to be able to grow if you're going to allow for people like you know the art of war crew and other people you know various other people throughout the world that are trying to take a very professional lens to it, um and I think they've certainly G W has done a fantastic job integrating a lot of those professional content creators into the playtesting team, bringing some of them on board as employees. So that's not just a reflection on the addition, but a reflection on the mindset. I think it's been really positive. Well said,
1: mate. Uh, all right. So where are, so I'm just going to go out and in broad strokes say that Jeremy, primarily, I think you will be known, you'd be known as most of an elder player, Eric as a Nid player, or GSC player, hive mind. And, um, Matt, as a chaos player, how are you feeling about your factions and super factions going into ninth edition? I'll take it over to, to Ez first. Oh, I am so
3: unbelievably keen. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why, mate? Um, just the, the missions GW have done and kind of turned the game into, especially with things like terrain rules and all that sort of jazz. It really favors board control. Lists. Uh, and that's and, your jam, right? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, reducing the length of a game. Favors my style of play, like that sort of cagey for a few turns, and then kind of just taking the game away from you, or giving you a very limited amount of time to deal with such a such a fast over, or,
1: over, yeah, overwhelming or overwhelming, course. yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm super keen. <laughs> Fantastic. And that, that'll be a breath of fresh air for hopefully a lot of listeners out there. One of the, the biggest proponents of the Horde meta, possibly the biggest proponent of the Horde meta that I've ever seen, is excited for ninth Edition. So maybe you should be too. Um, Matt, how are you feeling about chaos going into this? Yeah, look, less positive than Eric is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, look, I, I think the type of list that people will know me for, the list that you know people, I guess, call the Jim Vessel list is, it was in a bad place at the end of 8th playing with three different detachments now is such a CP tax that it's just not really viable uh, in ninth like I, I can't see anything like that uh, really being viable anymore um, look I'm, I'm honestly keen to uh, to try some new stuff um, I want to try some of the uh, the big greater demons with all the uh, the new cool stuff that I've got going on and to sort of see how that plays out but look I I'm really kind of keen to to go back to, to Matthew Edwards and play some MSU, play some Dark Eldar or something similar to that. Uh, I know that's not really what you want no, no, no. there, but um, look, uh, I, I'm a uh, I'm in the point where look I, again. I know we, we haven't seen the the tournament missions that a few people have been alluding to on competitive 40k. Apparently, there's some slightly different missions than uh, than what's in the rule book and what we've seen so far. Uh, so I'd be keen to see how they come out. And look, if they favour board control in the way that Eric's sort of alluding to in what he's had to say, then there's definitely be some play to, uh, to some chaos stuff. I've you know had a few chats with other you know, chaos players and we've been talking about running uh, like an absolute crap load of blood letters, like 120 blood letters. There's some really cool things you can do with, uh, with reserves and, you know, deep striking a heap of blood letters and, you know, having units that can still reliably pin multiple things and can still charge really far. And without Overwatch, obviously blood letters are, are very good. I'm um, like no one's gonna uh no one's gonna disagree with that so look I, I I'm keen to see how things shake out right now I'm not too, uh not too impressed from the chaos side of mm. things. but I'm looking forward to a new edition of the game altogether because you know look I, I really didn't love where eighth ended up as you probably could have told from my yeah. my previous little uh, little bit I had to say <laughs> that uh, uh, that was the weird way of saying you're gonna run 27 beasts in ergle <laughs> <That> was... <laughs> mate. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you have no idea how much I wanted to take beasts to LVO, but Jeremy
1: and Lee wouldn't let me. I, uh, I tried to convince them they were good, but they wouldn't let me take them. <laughs> Mate, 27. So three greater demons, 27 uh, beasts, and three PBCs.
0: I want to say it. Mate, it feels really good until someone, you know, snipes a beast out of the middle of your unit and you lose
1: oh, five of them. Dude, we're going to hold hold your horses. We're like half an hour away from that content. <laughs> now it's all good. Um, Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy, nicking it over to you, mate. Finish this off. Where, where does your lovely um, faction sit at the end of this edition? Well, it's been
2: a long time since I've, I've played Eldar, but I have to say this is probably the most keen I've felt for them actually in a long time, um, mainly because I think it's just obviously something fresh, but just I, I feel like there's a few things that are lining up well for Eldar, um, one of them being the uh, removal of the, the moving with heavy weapons penalty mm. for vehicles. Um, that really helps Eldar and Dark Eldar that don't have those 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 tanks like the Lemon Rust tanks or whatever that ignore the penalty, um, and we, it it really does help having having that ability. And it I feel like the um, indirect fire is also going to be premium going into Ninth Edition. Oh, I didn't, I didn't and obviously we've seen some of the the leaked points costs. I mean we don't have that many leaks, but we have some, and they they are suggesting that things like Thunderfire Cannons, Whirlwinds are going up. So it begs to believe that things like night spinners might also go up. But um, Eric, I hope you're ready for 36 night spinner shots coming at your <laughs> gaunts. Uh, uh, and that doesn't even add in the shadow weavers. So I think that Eldar will be able to do a really good, like, um, kind of like expert crafters list. So for people that are like, think about expert crafters, but um with a smaller board, uh, with things without the moving and shooting penalty on heavy weapons it'll make things like even i think like scatter bikes could become good Mm. um being able to just like move out get a good angle and then fire and fade away uh you could quicken them as well there's just a lot of options i think Eldar are going to be really good the council the conclave will be strong as well because of the rule i I don't want to cannibalize too much content later but i do think there's. i'm looking forward to it so i think Something like an expert crafters list or a hybrid list with like a conclave and expert crafter MSU
3: could be really strong. Nice. Hey, uh, Jarrods, you, you might be able to shoot night spinners at my gaunts, brother. Do you want me to lend you my fishing rod to get your death watch out of the bin?
2: <laughs> um, never heard of you, mate. No, sorry. No, it's, it's, I don't know. I think, I think uh, yeah, well, that, that's, it's interesting. But the, the problem with – we can talk about that now, but – if the night spinners go up to like 170, 180, whatever they might be, go up a lot, then, you know, we're back to square one. I'll be, I will be using my default so, well, bit. I think, I think
1: <laughs> some of the consensus I've heard is that if, if, if the line of sight shooting, the premium good line of sight shooting units, you know, things like livens and or night spinners and Thunderfire counters, they all go up exponentially. We're going to see, a, we might see a big pivot. Into things like scatter bikes, things that are fast enough to get the angles when you need them, they can double move, you can do all sorts of things. They go very relevant shooting against units that are going to be uh, doing the board control for their opposition, and they're going to be able to be put where you need them to be, if not you know chucked in reserve. So, yeah, i'm I'm keen on units like that. like I, I'm keen on my talilomasters. I think my talimaster master's probably going to go up in points, but still going to be sick. So yeah, all that goodness. Now we're we are at the point of wrapping up this very first inaugural, you know, 0.1 episode of the art of war down under podcast. So gentlemen, this is the time where if you want to plug anything, you can go for it. Eric, you probably got something. Alrighty. Yeah, guys, check out the art of war website and Facebook
3: page. Uh, you can find ways to get yourself into the war room subscription page. I uh, learn from people like myself, uh, these, these boys here and uh, some of our American brothers like Nick Nanavati. Um, yeah, check us out if you want a bit of help going into ninth edition. Maybe a bit of coaching, some list writing. Uh, other than that, uh, get keen for some pretty sick content coming out of all the Aussie
1: lads. Beautiful, well said, mate. Jez or Matt, anything you guys want to plug in?
2: Well, I can. I'll spruik the rubric. So um, myself and Lee El Toro from Team Australia um, we're working on a. Well, we've done three episodes of the rubric, which is a like an Australian Tactica. Uh, podcast, and you can check that out on Facebook, um, facebook.com forward slash the rubric podcast. And that is something we've only done three episodes so far, but as we start all getting excited again for the ninth, I
1: think you'll find some more episodes up there soon. Well, because COVID happened, yeah. So, yeah, it kind of killed everyone. Was... <laughs> and uh, Matt, you want to tell us about Dice Grid Gaming and those quality dice products?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, uh, I'd rather not. <laughs> um now nah, look on, on, on a on a more serious note, uh for those who are listening, if you don't already go and follow uh, the twenty twenty one now uh Australian wtc team at uh, at team australia forty k on Facebook um uh, we put a lot of cool stuff up on there, probably not for a little while now, given the uh the postponement of the event until next year,
1: but uh make sure you like it now so you see stuff as it comes out. Fantastic, all right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this very first episode. You can expect weekly episodes coming out from Art of War Down Under. The first episode is going to be dedicated to reviewing content. Going forwards, this is being our first launching episode, more of a stream of consciousness evaluating the landscape moving into ninth edition from some of the the best minds in the game. But moving forward, our first episode is going to be comprised mostly of reviewing content and talking about the philosophy of the game, doing some community interviews. Uh, I've got some amazing people who do incredible things for this community, and I want to give them and shine the spotlight of them. And uh, tell you a bit more about them now the second episode of that that was going to be made exclusive for our patrons the first one the uh the point two of this one the other part of this one we're going out for free of course and maybe even the part two of the first episode might be going up for free just to give you guys a taste to get you involved and see what you could be purchasing but um that'll be available on the patreon that's going to be dedicated to making use of the content that we review in the first episode so example of that um you know, So, Matt, we get a Chaos release, I'll, I'll jump, I'll grab Matt in, or if it's a Dark Elder, if that's what he's on, we'll review that systematically, we'll go through it, pull it apart, put it back together in the first one, give you all the information that you need to know what's happened, what changed for the landscape, and uh, what's been added. And then in the second episode, we'll be putting that stuff into practice, we'll be writing lists with that new content, telling you what's good, what's great. Uh, what things will be look like and the practical applications of how you can put that into the game and hopefully make it successful. Past that, we'll be doing stuff that's going to be integrating with our streamed content. Like when um, Art of War Down Under streams an event, goes out to CanCon streams games, we'll get the we'll get the winner of that event on and we'll break down the pivotal moments from the pivotal games. And um, that stuff's going to be really exciting and really, and I, I can't wait to get involved with it, guys so hopefully that's stuff you guys find exciting as well thank you jez thank you eric thank you matt um and you guys can see all these gentlemen in our part two which will be a ninth edition review essentially going through all the the big talking points and big changes from ninth edition and breaking them down from um some of these clever the boys we'll see you in the next episode see you see later folks. bye thank you for listening
0: to art of war down under